guys, what's up? So with this episode, I am talking to Opalia and Ruben from Designing in Color. One thing I got out of it is the importance of the NOMA conference. Without this conference, Designing in Color would not be here. They had an opportunity to present and they presented and they realized that they could take this on a road, spreading just a whole bunch of information. One thing that I got out of conversation is about shared experiences and how it's a cycle with every generation. Architectural graduates, you putting all these long hours and and you face some type of bias or discrimination while you're in school, being the only one in class and how that affects you. It's a constant thing. At such a young age, we are molded to navigate the implicit biases and how as an adult, we have to correct those wrongs. Because the three co-founders, Chris was not on, but I just want to acknowledge him as well. They This shared experience that they had brought them together to form Designing in Color. And when you listen to this episode, you hear them articulate the exact same way I was feeling, past and present, and how there's this need for us to make sure that the next generation doesn't feel that way. Here I am talking about the commonalities of shared experience. And then here I am <laughs> realizing that, no, it's not everybody shares that experience. There are some people who went to college, Black people who went to architecture school, graduated within the five or six years, got a job, studied, took their exam, and just living the life. And I'm so jealous of them just because they were able, they had the coping mechanisms to deflect everything. Sometimes I just want to talk about architecture and this, but some way, somehow blackness is in, is always at the forefront, but it's, it's my experience. Part of me wants to talk about it, but it's, I don't want to be a broken record either. I don't know. Here's our talk and let me know what you think. I enjoyed it. Okay, guys later designing in color is it like in living color is that how that name came about <laughs> that is a good question i don't think it was that intentional but i think we can go with that <laughs> <laughs> we're very strategic color like in my showing my age what you guys are- well, we know in living color okay. i just don't think that was the intention behind the name <laughs> <laughs> quick question though how'd you guys come up with that name well, Chris, which is our other co-founder, came up with design and color. I don't know, Ruben, if you know more than me because you were in the lab brainstorming with him at Michigan. But essentially, I guess we'll get into it. We had this like workshop idea for Noma Conference that was supposed to be a one-off event that turned into, you know, we got really good responses. So that workshop was called Design and Color, and we covered three specific topics, and that mm-hmm. became the entire name for our group. So. That's kind of how we elevated to this position. (laughs) And then you guys like met Chris in UMass and what's the other connection? Uh, 
I met him in Taubman College, University of Michigan. Okay. Architecture grad school. Yeah. So the origin story, let's get into that. Who wants to talk about how you, Ruben or? Sure. So I still remember it was undergrad. It was almost like around finals period. We're all exhausted, trying to scramble and get stuff together. And Chris came up to me with like a glint in his eye. And he's like, man, I'm going to make you a star. And I was like, what does that even mean? That's so weird. What are you talking about? But I was tired and I was like, you know what, sure, I'll go along with it. So he filmed, he liked to film a lot of videos. He still does. He's a great videographer. And he wanted to put together an application to a NOMA kind of presentation for the convention that they have every year. So he, he was kind of inviting me and some other students of color. There were like literally four Black students in the whole grad school. So it wasn't much, of a, you know, he, he didn't have to ask for very long, but he got us all together in the room and we started recording together. And I remember the first take we did, we did a really, I thought we did a really great job. We were on a stool in front of a green screen, pouring our hearts out to the camera. And then the next day he was like, I'm going to edit this. Don't worry about it. He, then he texted me, man, it didn't record. And I was like, what? It didn't record, dude. So the entire like hour we spent recording, putting our hearts and souls in the camera, we had to do it again. So the application tape that we sent into NOMA was take two, but it was accepted and it kind of just snowballed from there. We started to ask around who else at Taubman was interested in joining us. I met Opalia and we just instantly had this great chemistry. We we're like, okay, this person's cool. You know, I've never met her before, but she's cool. We started talking it was great. And, and then we actually kind of met him in person and we had to do this presentation together like the next day with barely any prep. I'm getting all nostalgic thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we had to get together in this Airbnb together. It was not a great Airbnb. It was a little run down, I won't lie. But there was this real kind of unifying feel to it. You know, we're all in the air mattress on the, on the floor, trying to kind of work through our notes, try not to be nervous. We were all super nervous. We never done anything like that on a scale like that before. We're like, you know, we got this. We're trying to psych each other up. But we're super, super nervous. We're like sweating through our jackets. I remember us getting to the convention room, trying to set up everything on the screen. We were pacing around, practicing our notes, going like, okay, what if this happens, man? We're like, I don't know. We'll just we'll figure it out. Oh, man, I'm thinking back. But it was at that convention that went really well. I have to ask, I have to add that we, we gave Apalia here the nickname Young Oprah because she absolutely killed it in her section. Like she looked like she was like, it was like seeing into the future and seeing successful, super entrepreneur Apalia just channeled into this person, just killing it. Like everyone's eyes were just stars. They were just looking at her like, man. And it was great. And, it, and at the end of it, you know, people kept coming up to us. We ran out of business cards that we printed at Kinko's like the, the days before. It just felt great. And, and after that, we're like, we're hooked. We're like, we love doing this. We love spreading this knowledge. That's, that's kind of how we started. How do you remember it, Apollo? Very similarly, I think from my end, again, Chris and Ruben were in Michigan at grad school. And I was back home in Massachusetts. Actually, I think you guys were still in Michigan because you guys did a summer program after the end of the year. I was back home because I went to school in Philadelphia for grad school. So I was back home in Massachusetts. And me and Chris are really close from undergrad. So it wouldn't be unusual for us to send each other like, hey, can you 
proofread this or can you edit this? So that's kind of how he wrote me in like, hey, can you proofread this? And I remember I stayed up until like 3, 4 a.m. like proofreading it. And I was just like, I am a dope friend. Man, I tell you, like, <laughs> I, like, I am such a dope friend to sit here and do this for my guy. So as we, you know, continue to develop, the team started to expand. So Ruben's right. When we got accepted to present at the NOMA conference, we were super hyped, but we thought like we were going to give this, you know, one-off presentation that's really going to create a safe space for us to articulate and have other people, both students and professionals, articulate their frustrations of being like, you know, silenced and oppressed in architecture as people of color. And for those of you who are not familiar, NOMA is the National Organization of Minority Architects. So that was also my first time attending a NOMA conference. So it was the first time I've ever seen so many architects who looked like me in a room. So I was just genuinely inspired just being in there. So, you know, we're doing, of course, design and color were never simple. So we want to, you know, interview people ahead of our conference and have them have a video clip that we'll present before we actually start the presentation. So we're mingling while we're there. I think our presentation was on like the second day. So like the day before at lunch, we're like interviewing people about their experiences so we can merge this clip together and have it open up our presentation for the next day. But it was just a really great opportunity for for us to collaborate and share space and have both students and young professionals and business owners and people more established in their field all talk about the challenges they faced in architecture of being censored, of not feeling represented, things of that nature. And I think Ruben hyped me up so eloquently, my guy. <laughs> but like, I think, I think for them, I'm a very introverted personality, right? So I think for friendships like mine with Chris, the reason why it works so well is because Chris always pulls me out of my shell. So I think it it was a surprise to the team how one, we work so well together, but to see us all shine with a different size of our personality in one presentation. So that was, it was really awesome. We got really, really great responses and feedback. One of them being from, Quasi Daniels, and I'd be remiss if I don't, you know, big up Quasi just because he was so intentional about telling us, like, y'all have something, stick with it, keep pounding, push. I want to see y'all go bigger. I want to see y'all go harder. I want to see y'all collaborate. Let me know if I can do anything. And he's been one of our biggest advocates till this day. And that we started back in October 2016. So it's been a super amazing and fundamental journey that we're continuing to learn and grow on. Which conference was it? It was NOMA National Conference in 2016. So it was in Los Angeles. Wow, that's an amazing story. So you're born and raised in Boston. No, you were born in Jamaica. Yeah, yes, you're correct. I was born in Jamaica, raised in Massachusetts. Part of my life, I was raised in a small city outside of Boston called Lynn Mass. And the other half of my life, I was raised in Springfield, Massachusetts. So always Massachusetts-based. And yeah, I come from an immigrant family. I'm an immigrant myself. So I think navigating that in architecture, which is a very kind of elitist career type, has been quite a journey. 
how old were you when you came up here? I I came to America very young. So I came here when I was one. Okay. Funny enough, we came during a snowstorm. So if you can imagine coming from Jamaica in the middle of a st- storm and getting stuck. In, in- Massachusetts, no less. <laughs> like, like, this ain't New York snow. This is Massachusetts snow. Listen. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I came when I was one. Do you want me to go into like my... No, yes. Yes, I do. A little bit like I, my parents are Trinidadian. They come up here and I went to Wentworth. So, mm-hmm. so it's like, yeah, let me hear your story about Boston and being... Got you. Yeah. So I'm Jamaican. My parents are Jamaican. I have an older sister. Who part of Jamaica? Manchester. Okay. Yeah. And I have several younger siblings who weren't born yet <laughs> when I first came here. Like I said, I was raised part of my life in Lynn, Massachusetts. And I think that's a place where a lot of my family immigrated to. I'm not sure how we randomly landed on Lynn, Massachusetts, but like a lot of us are there. And then I moved to Springfield when I was 12, like halfway through seventh grade. And I think the move for me was traumatic because it was so sudden. Like my, my dad is a mover. So he does moving for a living. So when I moved at 12, we knew that we were moving. We helped pick out the house, but we never had a date. And because my dad does this every day, he just came home one day like, we're moving today. And I'm like, we're not. I have a hair appointment today. I'm not missing it. (laughs) So I went to my hair appointment and they packed up the rest of the house. And we sure enough did move that night with only a couple of my box braids done. Because, you know, box braids is a whole, it's a whole routine, girl. It's a whole day. Yeah. So we moved and we actually moved on Christmas Eve. And my parents presented it as, the house is your present. And I was just like, there you go. Wouldn't recommend that. (laughs) But I say all that to say, because I was taken from what I was used to, and I'm already naturally an introverted person, I just kind of went more in on myself. So that's when I got into reading for pleasure, because I'm like, I don't have my family that I can rely on. I didn't have my, you know, cousins that I used to see every weekend at church. Like, I didn't have that. I was starting um, fresh. So I started getting into reading and reading pretty much led me to architecture, right? So within the housing journey, like our house that we bought, we bought an older home. So we had to replace the kitchen. So I helped my dad build the cabinets and I was like, oh, I like this hands on this. Like I always joke to my family, like I'm a man's man. Like I do this. <laughs> so my parents are always like, yes, yeah, she's, she's a man's man. So I knew I liked to be hands-on. And my older sister always said she wanted to be a businesswoman. And I was just like, shoot, me too. Then, then I want to be a businesswoman too. And I also ha- always had this artistic flair where I was drawing. So I was just like, what is a career that merges, you know, business with art and being hands-on? So I was randomly reading a book and the main character was an architect and real estate developer and he had money and I said me too (laughs) and that's that's really how I I got to architecture so I figured that out in high school and I remember I told my guidance counselor 
and by like end of junior year I started going to like an after school program for architecture in my neighborhood that was sponsored by what would become my undergraduate school UMass and that's kind of where I learned like the very basics like we're going to draw this split pepper in plan we're going to draw this split pepper in section we're going to draw this pepper and elevation. And that kind of gave me the language, but it was also a challenge because now I'm trying to apply to architecture school and I don't have a portfolio. My school doesn't offer me any architecture classes. The most I had was my art classes and none of it was of architecture. So I have random still lives and self-portraits and I'm just like, so what am I supposed to, what is this portfolio supposed to have? So I felt underprepared. So through that after-school program, I was connected with a guy who became my mentor. And he was an architect. He was a local architect in Springfield. And he, you know, I would go to his office and he would give me like sketching assignments. So he'd be like, walk down the street and there's a church at the end, draw that church. Walk up the street and there's a courthouse, draw the courthouse. Walk down the street and there's a library, draw the library. And that's kind of how I built my, um, portfolio with freehand sketches and they weren't even the hottest sketches <laughs> but that's really what I really built up my portfolio in addition to the artwork that I did create in high school to create my architecture portfolio that got me into undergrad. Was UMass your first choice? It wasn't it actually was my safety school it wasn't a school I wanted to go to just because like it's local and I'm like, fuck, everybody go to UMass at my high school, you know, so you want to go somewhere else. So I was like, I really wanted to go to Northeastern. I got in, they gave me no money. I really wanted to go to Howard. I'm like, oh, all black, everything. I'm here for it. Uh, no money. I said, you know what? I promised myself that I would fund my own education. And UMass is the only one who heard me. So I said, yeah, we go to UMass. <laughs> and, and that's pretty much how I ended up there. Because to be honest, before I went to that program, I didn't even know UMass had an architecture program. Like it wasn't, it wasn't advertised. So had I not met, you know, the professor who was leading up that, you know, community program that I went to after school, I, I didn't even know UMass had architecture. It was UMass Amherst, right? Yeah, UMass yeah. Amherst. Yeah. Because I, I had a conversation with this. I was like, other than the conversation was, I think Boston has like the most architecture schools and we were sitting there counting them. And then I was like, oh yeah, there's UMass too. It's not in the cluster. Mm -hmm. You can't take the T or whatever to Amherst. But mm -hmm. I was just like, yeah. So And UMass has plenty of locations. UMass has UMass Boston, it has UMass Lowell, it has, you know, so right. they all offer different aspects, but. Yeah. How was UMass education? It was good. I think it had its challenges and its flaws because one of the things with UMass is it didn't offer a bachelor's of architecture. When I was there, it was just a bachelor's of fine arts in architecture. So that was what my degree was in. So with that coursework, you start off freshman year taking art classes with all the fine arts majors so like that first year it's all art and it's not until your second year that you really get into anything architecture related so that's when we started you know making models and learning the the vocabulary and taking architecture history courses and things of that nature but I also felt like 
it didn't have the same technical mastery that I would want for my education when I was there. Like I felt like, and I felt like this was a lot of schools, like you really have to teach yourself the technology to be able to succeed in it because school doesn't do, spend enough time teaching you like these different programs. You just kind of have to be curious and play around on yourself and figure it out on your own. So that was UMass. And I was grateful because our program, my year, we probably had like maybe 60 students and maybe I think four of them was Black, maybe one or two Hispanic people and maybe one Asian. So UMass is very much a predominantly white institution. So I think that's one of the reasons why Chris and I got so close because we were one of very few people of color within the architecture program at UMass. Was that the norm all throughout your education, like high school and junior high or whatever? High school, it was, my high school was pretty diverse, I would say. Yeah, I would say all my like pre-collegiate education, it was pretty diverse because I usually live in areas that are pretty diverse. So it's a lot of like, you know, immigrant families or first generation families along with white families. So I don't feel like I was, I didn't have that same sense of like this, like direct culture shock that was as a parent because I wasn't going to schools that like everyone looked like me. But I think UMass was the first time I was in class and I was just like, yo, these these kids really have it good. Like I remember having moments of frustration where I feel like I'm busting my tail to really accomplish these deadlines and meet all these goals and be a good representative for Black people. So people, Black people after me will have the same opportunities or even better opportunities because I was a good representative. And I would have classmates whose dad was an architect, so they already had a secure job, so they weren't hardly worried about these assignments. Or other classmates who did the very, very bare minimum. They were brilliant in, like, they were brilliant designers, but they didn't work. So they would always miss deadlines or the day before finals, that's when they would start their project and have an incomplete project. But because the teachers know they have the potential to do very good work, they still were able to pass. And I was like, I could never. (laughs) Here I am busting my tail and doing all these all-nighters to meet your deadlines. And these people are doing the bare minimum or missing half the semester and you're still giving them A's just because you think that they have this ability to be great. And you weren't giving me that same grace. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of instances in school where Teachers were not happy with me because I made it known that I was not happy with them. And I think I've always kind of had this sort of like defender spirit. So if I feel like I'm being mistreated, if I feel like you're mistreating other people, you will know my email will be a full page and I will list out, (laughs) list out, this is not fair and let them know. So that's me. How about culturally? Was that difficult for you? At UMass? That and just being in Massachusetts. Well, where was the Caribbean store? Like, how did you? It wasn't, it wasn't hard culturally. Lynn, when I was growing up in Lynn, Lynn was very diverse. It has a large, like, Hispanic 
population, Asian immigrant population, African population, like Caribbean population. So we knew where to get certain elements. And if we couldn't get it in then we know where to get it in Boston because Boston also had those similar populations. Springfield is very similar too. Springfield has a lot of Jamaicans here as well. And we're like 30 minutes away from Hartford, Connecticut, which also has a lot of Jamaicans as well. So I didn't feel like I was lacking because my family always knew within like a 30 minute drive where to get a lot of our um, native foods. And how about college? There was nothing. (laughs) You went home. I went home. That was also a 30 minute drive. (laughs) (laughs) So I I'm hungry at home or were you on campus? No, I lived on campus, but my like my house was like 30 minutes away. So like I'd go home at least once a month because I when I went to college, I had a really young sister who was like my baby. So I didn't want to be away from her often. So I went, I went back and forth a lot so anytime I was like missing like you know good authentic Jamaican food I just went home but you to give UMass credit UMass does win a lot of college dining awards they they do a lot with their dining it's not Jamaican food they be trying it is not (laughs) but you do have a lot of options more than most colleges okay Ruben you're next Oh, I'm nervous. <laughs> that was a that was a good background, boy. Learned some stuff. I didn't know that. Okay. Now you know, besties. <laughs> <laughs> so, were you always in Seattle or? Oh, myself? No, I was born in uh, Accra, Ghana, West Africa, and came over to the states when I was pretty young, maybe like six or so. And I remember it was back in the days when pilots were really, really chill. So they saw that I was a little kid. I had like my little carry-on in the seat and I was all nervous. And they're like, oh, don't be scared. It's just a plane. You want to come up and fly it? And I was like, yeah, cool. So they escorted me up and I got to actually like pilot the plane. They just let me put my little hands on the wheel for a little bit. Oh. Um, and I think about it now, like they would have shot me. Like if it was nowadays, like <laughs> that was a very very specific moment in time yeah you're yes. just lax enough about airport security to let that happen. but it was a very cool first experience with america we went straight to ann arbor after that i remember it was just snowy like crazy crazy snowy and it wasn't long i mean i got used to america pretty quick when i was back in ghana my mom and her aunties were obsessed with just movies from hollywood so i used to watch a ton of them before i even got to America, ironically, Coming to America was one of my favorite movies. So I used to binge watch that and kind of compare it. It was like a weird primer to American culture. Between that, The Simpsons and like Seinfeld, I was like learning a lot of pop culture. It influenced my views, which is kind of a weird way to learn, but also it worked, I I think. So I got to the States. I started going to school and I remember it wasn't even that long into school. It was like the first week that I was the only black kid in class and this other white guy or white kid, he was just like a little child. He, he didn't really like that. So I remember one time during a break, he just went up to me, punched me right in the face, busted my lip open. The teacher was there, she saw everything. She didn't do anything. She was just sitting there, just bowing her nails. She was just like, it happens. And so I remember lying there on the floor 
looking around going like, is this normal in America? Like, what's happening? Is anyone going to help? So I had to like get up, go to the bathroom, clean myself up and just sit back down. Everyone was acting like nothing had happened. I finished the whole day. I was walking out to the car where my parents were and they were shocked. They were like, what, what just happened? What, what did your this? African mother do? What did she oh do? Oh my God. <laughs> so props to the two of them. They are the best African parents you can ask for. They, I think, <laughs> I don't want to get them in trouble. They basically hunted down that kid and they just intimidated him. They're like, yo, never, ever do that again, ever. And from that, the kid left me alone. Like it was so dope. I was like, okay, cool. We're in a strange, often hostile country, but my parents got my back, you know? So it, it was probably for the best that I kind of learned about the ugly side of America early because it really defined a lot of how I approach relationships moving forward. I think my experience was often as the only black kid in class. So I always had a bit of caution to how I formed relationships, but at the same time, I enjoyed being around people. So I learned to kind of separate, like project that kind of persona out there, but never let people get emotionally too close to me simply because I didn't really trust the intent or intentions of other people after that crazy incident so early. So when I was younger, it was a lot of moving around. My dad is a curator. He works at various museums. He worked for the Smithsonian for a period of time. He currently works at the Detroit Institute of Arts. So a lot of my youth was jumping around from to New York, New Jersey, to Maryland briefly, back to Ann Arbor, just to different museums. So it made me really good at just interacting with people and new groups of friends frequently. So I got used to moving and eventually ended up in high school in Michigan in Detroit at a Catholic kind of college preparatory school run by Jesuits. Jesuits are super hardcore teachers. Like they will make you good at a subject. Like there's no discussion. You will be good at it. So props to them. It was kind of interesting. It was a very diverse class of students. I'm still friends with a lot of them. A lot of black students actually, which is kind of dope. It was a Detroit school, so it makes sense. And it was cool just hanging out with them and learning from them. I would say I didn't really discover architecture until after undergrad. I was never really going to be an architect. I've always loved art because I grew up in a house filled with African art most of the time, but I never really thought about architecture as a profession. I just wasn't as interested in it as I was in medicine. So I went to undergrad as pre-med for the entire time I was there until the very, very last year where I decided that I pre-med just wasn't for me. And if you're African, you know how that conversation is difficult with parents. It's like, are you sure? Are you really sure? Is there nothing else you want to do? Is there nothing we can do to convince you to be a doctor? And there wasn't. I just didn't want to do it. So I took a year off after undergrad and started doing some freelance design work. And little did I know that was building up the portfolio I would use to apply to uh, grad school. I had no idea really what I was doing when I was designing. It was just fun for me to do. And I noticed that whether it was photography or making logos or just drawing, it just felt right. So I kept doing that and I just built up a whole body of work kind of by accident. And when it came time to apply to grad school, I just knew I wasn't, I just had to do something. Like I, I feel like I still needed to learn something or, or just master some kind of profession or go into something. So I kind of, I just decided on architecture. It seemed like a blend of arts, but you can kind of monetize it a little bit more consistently than just being like a artist, even though I love art itself. 
So I applied with the portfolio I built up over the years or the year really. And by some stroke of luck, I got into University of Michigan. So I went there for undergrad and grad school. They welcomed me back in for some reason. I was like, hey, all right, I guess I'm back in the snow again for another three years. I was in the three-year program meant for people like me who didn't have architecture in undergrad. So the first year was like boot camp. They just tell you everything you need to know. I remember just being so confused, like, like, what is this? What is a post-shake? Like, they was moving so fast, nobody would take the time to really explain things. You just had to go on YouTube. So YouTube University, that's where a lot of my tuition money ended up going. Exactly. It probably knows what's up. But yeah, it, it went really well. I got to meet Chris there. And Chris was always just a really visionary character. He was always fun to just interact with and shoot, kind of share ideas with. And at the end of our uh, grad school experience, we got really lucky, the two of us, to be chosen to go to Venice for the Biennale. And we helped to put together the exhibition in, in Italy. And that was cool. And we spent, you know, like a month after the exhibition, just bumming around Italy with uh, and Europe, really, with just what little money we had. It was a really great way to kind of cap the year off. Yeah, that's a really quick run through. I'm trying to think of... That traumatic experience that you happened as a kid being in mixed spaces was there anything in architecture school that stood out for you or you were like this isn't right or it was just it was just easy breezy like I yeah oh yeah that's a great that's a great question architecture school was really complex politically is what I noticed definitely there were not very many people of color at all and I picked up on that instantly but I'd been used to that growing up so it wasn't that I thought it was right. It was just, I thought this was typical for what I've encountered so far. But I think where it stood out as egregious to me was when it was time to make uh, presentations, models, all that stuff. It was all gated behind cost. So if you wanted to spend hundreds of dollars on a model, you could, and you'd probably get a better grade. In my case, I could not afford that. I would always work with kind of the cheapest materials I could find, usually foam board or foam core. And it was just the best I could do. It's like, it's just is what it is. And it kind of, it was so inherently unfair and kind of wrong. And it, it bothered me a lot. I had a friend who, who was very wealthy or came from a very wealthy family. And it was basically public knowledge that he was buying his grade he would never really be in studio doing work. He had a really fancy like luxury car that he would drive up to studio at like one in the morning just to hang out with his friends really. And then he would walk out and the next day somehow he would have pinned up an incredibly fancy well-produced presentation. And we're like, we never ever saw you do that. And we're a hundred percent sure it wasn't you who pinned it up. And he often wouldn't even really show up to present it. And yet he passed with a really nice grade. So it, it taught me that inherently the education system in architecture is deeply flawed. This is not a lesson you want people to learn that, first of all, it's unhealthy to expect the standard to be to stay up incredibly late and somehow give a coherent <laughs> presentation of your ideas and also be expected not to pass out the instant the adrenaline rush of doing that is over. It's absurd. It really bothered me. And it never got better throughout my entire career. And it just seems like this weird mark of honor for architects and architecture to, to suffer for your art. And 
What year did you graduate? I graduated in 2016. Okay. So basically the first year we did deco stuff, I think that was the end of that year. Yeah, it, it just struck me as super flawed. And I, I hope it changes, I really do. Because I, I don't want the next generation to come up assuming that you have to pay that sweat equity tax to be a designer. I don't think that's true at all. I really love Instagram. And this pandemic has really been a voice for architecture students. The other groups that I've done interviews, is it blows my mind. So I graduated in 05. And the same stuff you two are talking about, it's the same stuff that I went through. And then even like my mentor, she graduated in the 70s, 80s, 90s same stuff that they went through is exact same thing. I don't think it's going to change. I don't know how to change it. Like, how do you change it? Is it NCARB? Is it a university? How do you change the education and the culture of, mm-hmm. of the school? Students can write letters. Like there's always like a cycle almost, you know? Um, yeah, it's... I. That is exactly what led us to design in color. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy you mentioned that. What a great segue. Now, I, <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's it's that development of a culture of empathy that we were seeking to create. Architecture is already incredibly difficult. It's already elitist. It's expensive. It's restrictive. It's discriminatory a lot of the times. And we see no reason why people whose only crime is being interested in the profession need to be punished the entire time they're trying to become uh, professionals in that profession. It's, it's absurd. So a lot of that effort is trying to teach the leadership of these firms, of these organizations like NCARB, AIA, how to design with empathy. And that applies to both the communities that you design for and the students and, and interns who are learning to design in that industry. I think they go together beautifully. Our I don't even think it's a hope at this point. I think we live in an environment of kind of corporate activism that was kind of reignited last year. And I think right now, every corporation is really interested in looking good on social media and leveraging that as best as we can to actually direct those funds, direct those efforts towards change in policy bit by bit to make empathy the default and not something you need to work towards is certainly the goal that we're trying to reach. And I think it's doable, but it will take a little bit of time. It's a slow process, but you can make those little victories add up into a major one sooner than you think. And I think that's definitely what we're pushing for. Absolutely. I think to piggyback off of this, I think Ruben made so many good points. As I mentioned earlier, I think we all acknowledge that architecture is very elitist, right? That is the goal of the profession. It's very rigorous. They tell you about these long hours, these late nights, these. I remember when I was actually researching different colleges and, you know, being an architect and blah, blah. And I'd be on these like architecture boards and it was the most cynical pessimistic individuals on that board that just like don't be an architect we're underpaid we're undervalued it's long nights you can't have a family like it was such a negative perspective to be entering this field into right so this is like I aspire to be an architect but the people who are actually doing the work are telling me 
run as far as away as possible. So when you look at the systems and how architecture has been taught and really validated over the years, it is to be this elite field where you have to have many years of education. You have, and while you're in your education, you're paying excessive amounts for materials. You have to pay excessive amounts to print your boards to present. You have to carry these materials and hope they don't break in the commute. You have to present while sleep deprived and drained and put on this professional aura and really justify your work for people who don't even see you. Once you elevate above that collegiate level, then you have to start getting jobs. And like many fields, they want you to come as a baby with 20 years of experience. So it's like just to get a job. I remember having internships that are in architecture and I just felt like my time was being underutilized. I'm not learning anything more here than I would working at an insurance firm. Like you're supposed to be preparing me better and I felt like you didn't know I was coming, (laughs) you know? So when we look at how architecture can really be transformed beyond the empathetic level, I think we have to break down the barrier of maintaining this elitist ideal of what architecture and what architects are. We're taught from this very Eurocentric perspective. We're critiqued and judged from that same perspective. And then we go on to throughout, go through our, our careers and we're expected to struggle the same way that all those who came before us struggled, even though we have the advent of technology to make things easier. We're still supposed to pull the all-nighters, even though we have all these digital technology where we don't have to hand draw no more. But because they had a struggle, we have to struggle. You know what I'm saying? So then when you get these jobs, you're just like, hey, and I think what I've learned, a lot of millennials are like, hey, work-life balance is actually important for me. When you say that to jobs, you're just like, whoa, you don't want it bad enough because I had to do this. And it's just like, if I have to struggle and live a miserable life to have it, I do not want it bad enough. Because what I want in my life is to actually make a difference, but also be happy. And if I can't have them both, I'm not sure I should sacrifice just to have architecture, especially architecture who doesn't even see me for who I am. And I'm not reflected anywhere I go. So I think when you bring, I say all that to say, in addition to the empathetic role that architects need to take, we have to really focus on inclusion and diversity. And I know these words are thrown around and manipulated. So, you know, inclusion and diversity now means, you know, white women or international students, wealthy international students, all these different subcategories that even though make up 13 to 15% of the American population, the class of 2021 is still graduating with four Black people out of the class of 200 as the class of 1983. Like, why is that not changing? So when you really, like, I think from a fundamental level, like MCARB has to be redesigned. I think AIA has to be redesigned. All these gatekeeping opportunities in the field of architecture really do have to be dismantled and redefined. 
I fully agree. I mean, it's crazy that in a field where only 2% of licensed architects are black, there's an attitude that, no, don't come here, don't do this. It's so dangerous to communities of color because if you say that to a cohort of kids, most of whom may be white, like one of them might be black and hear that and would not want to be an architect. And I think that's where that danger lies. It's, it's restricting the vision for what the future could be. Do they get the same warning as we did? Because I got that too. Uh, an architect. Like, I'm kind of curious. Are, are you guys aware of any any white people ever telling stories of how they were discouraged in getting into architecture? I think I think it's interesting. I, I know friends who, especially in the three-year program, who just dropped out, usually after the first year. What I noticed is a lot of the black kids did not. And I think part of that is simply you've sacrificed so much to get here and there's so much more at stake for you that it, there's that pressure to succeed in spite of, in spite of what you're going through, in spite of the toil that it's wrecking on your mind and your body. You want to succeed. You want to show your family that this weird, expensive obsession of yours is worthwhile and you want to bring it back to your community and make it make it something positive. I would argue that a lot of more privileged kids, it doesn't matter. They can go and do anything else they want and they have that flexibility, they have that freedom to do so. And I think that's the, the, the inequality that we often see when we gatekeep. Let's talk about designing in color. One of our workshops, uh, technically our LA one would be our first, but I would argue maybe our Tuskegee workshop maybe be, for me anyway, like our first real test run with students. And I would argue that would probably be our first. I don't know if Polly, would you agree? Is that a good first jumping off point? Yeah, for sure. I think our first NOMA workshop really lit the fuel. But I think Tuskegee was built off of a reputation that we had established for our own. So we got it on our own, right? So it wasn't in connection to this larger entity that's already happening and we kind of fit in, it was a one-off where we got on our own. So yeah, I think I think you're you're right, Ruben. So with the one in Tuskegee, how did you prepare for that versus your first DOMA conference? What was different about that? It was back in the day when we could meet in person. It was uh, those good old days. I think a lot of it for me was reckoning with the fact that I was going to Tuskegee and trying desperately not to make a fool of myself. I knew we'd be in front of professors and students who, who in a lot of cases know more than us in some of the things we'd be presenting about. So it was, it was about practicing and practicing and practicing and making sure the information was in mind all the time. Basically, I think by that point, we were comfortable enough with each other. It was Chris, Polly and myself that we kind of knew how to bounce off each other and, and roll with the punches. So there was that, that, calmness that came over us, but it was still preparing slides to be, you know, coherent. The activity that we were going to do with the students needed to make sense. And that's something that we spent a lot of time drilling down because it makes, it makes sense in uh, when you're focused on something, you know, but when you pull someone, you know, into it who hasn't seen it before, does it make sense to them? And that's what really stressed us out. But I think ultimately it was, I think right that summer, the, the Jay-Z and Beyonce Carter's album came out. And there was one song, was it Boss? I think it was Boss. 
but it really it had this great line and oh, man, I'm blanking on it. Do you remember how I went about it? It was like a real hype up line for us. Anyway, J and B gave us a lot of inspiration for that panel, but as it came together, it was just about being prepared for the unpreparable. Honestly, it was just being spontaneous and, and roll with the punches and the students rose to the occasion. They were awesome. They absorbed the information super quick. We presented something about imagine a world without money. What would that look like? And it was this kind of utopian vision and they, they, glomped onto that immediately. And we had these, this really great conversation. We filmed it. I'm so happy we did too. And I learned a ton from that. Yeah, and I think with Tuskegee, it's also knowing our audience, right? So we know that Tuskegee is HBCU. We know our audience are going to be majority Black students. And we also know enough about Tuskegee that knows that it was like, one of the first places that Black students were able to be educated in architecture, right? So they have this extensive pride in history and their students are true scholars. So it's taking all that information being like, how are we presenting this conversation to this particular audience in which they can, it's relatable, they can dissect it, but they're also bringing their own social, cultural, physical location into the activity that we did, right? So knowing that Tuskegee is in rural Alabama, where there's a lot of farming, but there's also has a lot of history of, you know, racism. How are they going to bring that experience into this activity, into this topic, into this lesson? And I think it was a really great opportunity because I think one of the strengths is Ruben, Chris, and I, we look very young. We're not super intimidating looking. So when we talk to students, it feels like, hey, we just kicking it with our peers. So we're, we're just having conversations. We're getting the knowledge. We're, we're, we're bringing cultural context and content that is relatable, but it also doesn't feel like it's coming from this kind of hierarchical perspective or top down perspective it feels like yo we're just here to have a conversation we're creating a safe space like what you guys are going through we've been through it a couple years ago so how can we help you navigate um what you're going through if designing and color existed when you were in school how would that look like for you how would that change your projection maybe would you form another group yeah that's a really good question so much of design and color for me, for my experience, has just been learning about how unlimited the bounds of architecture and design are. So if I'm able to transfer that to like a young me, when I was in architecture school, I, I kind of resented architecture as a field. I felt it was so restrictive. I felt that I was going to take my degree and go do something else, just use whatever technical skills I learned to do other stuff. But it's through creating for design and color and researching and doing the workshops that I'm learning about how there are these amazing designers out there who are changing communities with the skills they've learned in architecture. Architecture has no real bounds. Uh, like Olale Khan Jeofu is, is an incredible designer who dreams up these futurescapes for New York City. 
if I could introduce that to a young me in school and just to see this is what you can do. This is what an architect can be. I think that would have been such a transcendent moment for me. I would have been so much more enthusiastic about this degree because it's like, it's something I didn't know I could do with it. I, I didn't realize the potential for architecture because I, I'd been in this a situation where everyone was so restricted by a traditional dour, depressing, Eurocentric version of it where you just suffer all the time. And then in your 70s, you become recognized if you're lucky. And then maybe you become a star architect. And the entire time before you get there, you make everyone else miserable too. When I started working right after school, I noticed that there were architects who'd been there for five or six or seven or maybe a decade or two, and they look so depressed. They look hollow inside. And I felt that if they had had the experience that I hope we were able to give the youth and students, maybe they would have had that spark of creativity and hope still too. So that's what it would have done for me. And um, for me, when we think of the mission of design and color, our mission is fundamentally to diversify the way that architecture is taught in practice to amplify marginalized voices. And that is so specific and that is so important to us because we were the marginalized voices. We were the ones who were constantly silent. So we are in these educational environments where if we decide to do a project that's pertaining to our blackness and architecture, it's considered too political or it's considered off topic. Or I remember I tried to do my thesis on gentrification and my professor was like, gentrification is not that bad. And I'm just like, I'm not about to spend a whole year fighting with you. If the first day you're already telling me my topic is, you're already invalidating my topic, that just means the entire year is going to be a fight because you already don't believe me. You know what I'm saying? It's having those constant moments within school of feeling like even when I did achieve or even when we did do something, we were questioned and if we really did it or if we got help or did we cheat or are you sure you did this or why did you do it like this or are you sure you want to do this or this is not right for us you know like it was always being questioned and I think that was one of my reflections in architecture like I feel like it was constantly these moments of being impostured of constantly being questioned like why are you doing this this way are you sure you did this how did you get to this point oh you made a fatal error in doing this thing instead of this thing and it was just like who who are you I, and I think for me one of the questions that I got that's always stood out to me and when I talk to other people of color and, and not even black people of color when I talk to other people of color in general that they also heard is having professors ask them are you sure you want to be an architect who's paying for this education, me or you? Like, you don't get to question that. I didn't come to you saying, I'm not sure I want to do this. So you don't get to just randomly ask me, are you sure you want to do this? To again, put that uncertainty in my mind and lower my confidence. So I think having an entity like Design and Color who specifically is there to stand up for those marginalized, to stand up for those quieted voices, is so fundamental and it allows people to know that there are people who are not going with the status quo just because that's the way it's been done up to this point. There are people who are like, hey, I understand how important identity is to a person living a happy life. 
And I want my identity to be reflected in the work I do. I want other people's identities to be reflected in the, these environments, in these buildings that we're building that will last for decades and centuries. Like architecture has taken out cultural significance <laughs> out of so many of the works. When you talk about you know, gentrification, when you talk about redlining, when you talk about all these racist policies that created the environments that we live in today, you really see how people, community, the environment was not prioritized. And I think what we're trying to do at Design and Color is really reverse that and make it known that, hey, humanity first, people first, culture first, the people who are here first, first, <laughs> instead of focusing on these bottom lines and these deadlines and these awards in different recognitions for esteem. That's that's less important to us. It's really about making people feel validated and making people's identity be reflected in the architectural environments that they live in. You hit on so many points. Um, the first point was the fact that how discouraging architecture is and how negative architecture is to, to the profession. Constantly bombarding you with negativity, criticism, the whole crit idea to stand up in front of your peers and defend your work. What's the point? I, I never understood that part. The second thing that this is universal. I've talked to many people across the pond, black and brown, and they experience the exact same thing. That why are you going to be an architect? And just constantly questioning and you, you, you're young, you know, you're like, you're 18, 19, and you're starting something completely new. You're alone because it's, it's just you in the classroom, you know, you're number one or number two of your hue and you're being told you can't do this. I think that's the most striking thing about architectural education like globally. Do you guys ever have an urge of going back home and doing something? You want to go you back mean to, to like our native countries? To your native countries. Like you want to go back to Ghana or Manchester? What part of Ghana? Accra. So the capital Accra. city. Yeah, okay. I would love to do that. I think I see that in my future as just a matter of fact, frankly. I think Ghana is beautiful. I think the last <clears throat> the last year, especially in this country, has really frustrated me and it's made me think about design internationally. I feel like it's very limiting to imagine yourself as an architect of color only in America. I think you're missing out on a lot of opportunities for creativity and growth. I feel like there's a inherent, as you mentioned, I'm happy, I'm happy you brought up your, your points about systemic inequality. I think there's an inherent system of exploitation. I think that's the default culture of capitalism. I think it's ironic that architecture is known, one of the, the precepts is to be concerned with the health, safety, and welfare of the community, but it never specifies which community. And it clearly doesn't apply to architects themselves, which is kind of weird. So do you have a community uh, or an industry that's supposed to make the public safe, happy, and well-off? And then if you work for a client who's diametrically opposed to that, how do you make those two ideals coincide? You know, you can make a, a fine building that works for the client, but if it destroys the community, 
just because it succeeds in making the people who reside in that building, you know, safe, healthy, and, and well off, what does it mean if it destroys the community around it? How do you reckon with that ethical dilemma? I'm studying for the, a the ARES right now, and so much of it is ethics, and I keep chuckling to myself as I read sort of the high-minded rhetoric. It's like, I get the intent of this, but I don't think it matches the reality of the situation at all. I, I don't think the kind of moral conundrum is being addressed at all. It's like, you could you can make us memorize this, but we're not doing it clearly. Clearly, we're not putting this into practice. So there's a, a disconnect there. And I think that's inherent to capitalism in general. I feel like it's all about just if you're profit-centric and profit-focused, the people driving the profit do not matter. And I think that applies to how architects work. So it's it's very fascinating to see how cultures across the pond approach it. It's concerning to hear the same problems exist, but it's also kind of not surprising. But I would be so interested to see how, you know, even more cultures approach architecture and what issues they have. And, and if the general economic system around their practice has any influence on how they're treated as people. Yeah, for sure. I, it's always a dream to go back to Jamaica and build up the economy to provide jobs to research with the community and develop and explore what Jamaican vernacular architecture looks like. I think there there are so many different ambitions, but I one of my goals is to make architecture more accessible. I don't want us to sit at this on this pedestal. I don't want us as architects to only be a service rendered for the rich or the elite. I don't think that's necessary. And I think there are so many, there's so much creativity and talent in a lot of our native countries who look to America and, you know, the first world at this place with all the answers and everything is all set. When in reality, we're often stifled and struggling but we plaster on this smile to the rest of the world to make it seem like we're okay. So I think for, for me, it's really to go back home and sow into my country in the best way I can, while also create providing opportunities for the natives to, you know, build and develop and gain a sense of pride for things that they've developed and make it known that what you have here is more than enough. You don't have to aspire to be uh, America or you don't have to aspire to be England or any of these first world countries because I think a lot of it is feeling like, and I, and I, America does this with its patriotism or patriotism this idea of like, we're better than everywhere else. So everywhere else feels kind of less than. I, I, I want to change that notion. We're different. We have our different problems, but a lot of it revolves around the same issues. And how can we use design? How can we use architecture? How can we use local talents? How can we use the riches that the earth gives us and really sow back into our nations for generations to come? When I was in school, I was afraid of the study abroad program and it was due to affordability and I didn't trust my classmates and talking to other 
people overseas in interviews, I I realized I totally missed out. That's one thing. Second thing, why does it have to be European countries? Like I would have loved, I just, I would have went to like Puerto Rico. I would have went to like Brazil to study architecture there. I would have went to Argentina, Lagos. Like I would have loved to study. I would have went there. I going to Germany and to Italy did not excite me. If I went to, you know, Cuba, yeah, I would have went there. So it's just, it's interesting how these universities link up to these particular universities. You want to be international, but what type of international do you want to be? Do you want to be Christopher Columbus international? Because that's what I feel like that they're, they're training you to be versus true international styles. So is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Anything that's coming up? Any new workshops? Oh, how about the series? I want to talk about that. You guys had a series. Our Deco Grail series? Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, we started doing that last year. We realized we wanted, since we're all virtual now, we wanted a way to just keep talking and keep the conversations going. So we decided to start interviewing designers of color or entrepreneurs of color and just get in their their download on what they've been going through during this COVID pandemic. We had some great discussions with our our, our dear friend Kwesi, amazing conversation about the Black Barbershop and its relationship to architecture. I highly recommend you check it out. It's on our Instagram and YouTube. We had a great conversation with Bruce Waite of Rooted OKC, who is a barber going through, again, COVID-related issues. And it was great just getting the impression of, of stories that you don't really especially at a height of the pandemic where it's like the only media coverage I saw of Black people was of our pain and of our trauma and of our suffering and of our death. And it ended up becoming a really therapeutic, for me anyway, experience, being able to talk with visionaries who are, who are doing amazing things. So our current series, we're, we've been fortunate enough to talk to some, some Latinx designers. We posted that recently. A couple of weeks ago, we had some panels with some youth in Chicago, part of Queer in the Park. They're really amazing. I think that was a great panel. We were able to feature a, a kind of a presentation for Black History Month, a showcase of a variety of different uh, designers and entertainers, and not entertainers, thinkers, I should say, all of whom were incredible to speak to. So yeah, Polyamor, is there anything you wanted to mention for next week? I was just going to say, if you can define what a griot is and why that was specifically important for us to shine a light on these different people with different experiences. I am so happy you mentioned that. The griot is the West African storyteller, a fundamental and important part of every community. The griot was so critical to the history of community that if you were to harm one, or kidnap one if a rival uh, kingdom was to do so, it's an act of war because you're literally attacking the entire story, history, and in some ways, the future of, of an entire culture or an entire kingdom in one person. And we loved that idea, that appellation, that thought that in terms of narrative, the griot is an expert in what he or she knows. And that can be applied to any community member, any expert in their field, any designer, any thinker, anybody can be a griot. It's you expressing that history 
that led you to this design, that led you to this insight, that thought, that creation, and applying that to everyone we interview makes their story more iconic just by default. This isn't just a regular conversation. This is a person telling you everything they believe in, their hopes, their dreams, what they've been working on, what they put that sweat equity into. And at the end of the day, it's not a case of us walking away saying, man, that design was really hard. Don't do it. It's us saying, here's what they did. Here's how they got there. And here's how it can inspire you to do what you want to do too. And I think that's the power of the Grio. Wow. I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> yeah. I think Ruby killed it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't, that's. I would just, I would just add I think my favorite aspect of the Griot series is it's not just architects, right? So we have, yes, we have architects, yes, we have professors, but we have professional storytellers. We have activists, we have barbers, and we have community members who use these services or are inspired by their work. And when you reflect, I think with architecture when we think of you know sacred spaces and places of high regard in communities we don't think of places like the barbershop but I think it was so pivotal for us to shine a light on the black barbershop as a sacred space of the black community because when you think of all the conversations all the rearing of children all the life progressions that happen at the barbershop or through the barbershop, it's an invaluable experience for the black community. And I don't think we highlight it enough as a sacred space. So I think the Griot series is so important because we're shining a light on so many different experts and you know everyone's an expert of their own reality, right? So we're shining a light on so many different experts who is telling their story of their experiences, of their feels, of their childhood and how it's shaped the way they navigate the world in the built environment today. So I, I highly recommend the Griot series. It's always something new and interesting that really tackles a lot of the issues and the challenges that we talk about today. And I would, I would recommend it for designers and non-designers alike. That really reminded me of, I did an interview with Muslim women in architecture in the UK, and they had a series called Mishalis. My, my English is my, I can't read or pronounce. And it, when, when you mentioned that, that immediately reminded me of that. And sacred space and the definition of sacred space, meaning what that means to a Muslim woman. So like a prime example would be like happy hour and going to a bar, that is not a sacred, that's not a safe space for a Muslim woman. When you explained that, Ruben immediately was like, first thing I thought of. And secondly, wow, connection with the African roots and all that stuff. What you guys are doing is super important. Like it's, it, the, the, the content you guys produce is, and the different mediums that you guys use it through also. I'm glad I'm talking to you guys. That's all I have to say. It's so cool to chat with you too. There's definitely a range and stuff we're interested in. Chris loves film, so do I. Apali is an artist. Uh, I do photos. 
I think that kind of mixture of styles is hopefully inspiring, you know, students that architects aren't just one thing. The way Black people aren't monolithic, I don't think designers and architects need to consider themselves that either. Anyone can be a designer. An architect is literally just a job title that you earn when you get a license. Until then, you're a designer, period. You know what I mean? It's that elitism is so I've been on so many calls where they're these really talented griots in their own specific niche who are telling me that they're not designers. And there's like this caution, like, oh, I'm not a designer, though. And I'm always like, you are, you're just, you just don't know that you are. And I think that that knowledge base is so important and so missing. I also realized too, in, in listening to both of you, I never know what's going to happen, obviously, when I do these interviews. And I, I started this podcast out of selfishness to, to try to figure out how do I relate to architecture and how being in this Black space, what does that mean? Why am I here? I, I love architecture. Like, I've tried to leave several times. Stupid me, I'm still here. But one of the things that I've noticed, and you mentioned very specifically, is that in school, I was never taught to be an artist. Similar experiences, like I, I doodled, I jog, but I never developed that portfolio. Not only architecture school, but even applying for jobs. What are you, are you looking for? I never got a chance to explore being an artist and applying it to architecture. It's not about murals. It's about taking materials and putting it into 3D, living in it, occupying it. How does that look like? And how does that relate to other people that looks like me? And in architecture school, I was taught to mimic other architects. And and then they expect you to develop your own. And I'm like, you didn't teach me anything. You taught me how to mimic. And that's why we have crappy architecture today is because we're copying off of each other. And if the original copy was crap, what do you expect the, <laughs> the others to be, you know? But it's comforting to know that it's a shared crappy experience, but it's a shared experience nonetheless. So I, I thank you for sharing. Thank you for, for, for creating this, this group, this destiny's child of a group. And of course, we would be remiss if we didn't shout out the rest of our team, Jonathan Sharp, Brian Wisniewski, and Olga Bracamontes, all of whom are incredible. They've been with us for years and they've been critical. Like the three of us couldn't have gotten nearly as far as we've gotten without the full team. So shout out to the team in different time zones. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. I think we're all, we've all shared similar experiences and heartbreaks with architecture. So we're really just trying to design the world that we're trying to live in. So I think keeping that vision in view and acknowledging that we don't have to accept what has been given or accept what's been done in the past and that we have the power um, and the intellect and the talent and the skills and the passion to change the narrative and the future uh, of what an architect is or what architecture does and how it interacts um, with the community and the environment, I think is something that we should all not stifle, but instead let flourish because the status quo is only there because everyone thinks they have to maintain it. You don't. 
<laughs> you don't. And having having a team that supports you and backs you and has a similar mission has been so important. And I think that's why Design and Color has been able to achieve some of the successes that we have is because we are so passionate about the work. We're so passionate about the changing and shifting the culture of how things are operating. And we support each other in the mission, even if the ways that we focus on it differ or change or evolve. We all maintain the vision, essentially. So again, thank you so much for having us. This was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Hey, listeners. I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating this show, and it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week. But it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I want to keep the show going, and I want to invest in its growth. And I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week, and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespolly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.